Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings. I'm Robert Lee Kilpatrick. I'm the chair of the Health and Medicine Member-Led Forum here at the Commonwealth Club of California. And I'm delighted to welcome you to another one of our programs in health and medicine. You know, uh, since the beginning of COVID, we transitioned from an in-person model to a digital model. And that's how you're experiencing uh, our program today. Since the beginning, we have delivered over 720 programs digitally using uh, the expertise of our amazing production team. So many thanks to them. And many thanks to you. If you're a member, thank you for being a part of the club. And if you're not yet a member, please join with me for a mere $10 a month to join the Commonwealth Club of California at www.commonwealthclub.org. And I want to remind you that you can use the Q, the question, the Q&A function uh, on your uh, screen to send in questions uh, to our speaker today. And I'm delighted to introduce um, Timothy Yateman, MD. He's a professor of surgery at the University of Utah, and he's chief clinical officer of a not-for-profit startup called Phenome Health in Seattle. And I think he'll tell you a little bit about that. Today's program is something I know that most people are very interested in, which is clinical trials. And he's going to talk to us about a new way of thinking about them, planning them, executing them. So our topic is democratizing clinical trials. So welcome to the program, Dr. Yateman. Thank you very much, Robbie. And I must say, it's uh, quite a privilege to be here today. And I'm excited to share with you uh, some information on clinical trials. So uh, without much ado, I'll, I'll share my screen. So um, I want to talk to you today about the concept of democratizing clinical trial access. I've been a surgeon for 30 years, a surgical oncologist, and uh, have been actively involved in trying to bring clinical trials to patients. Um, it's quite a challenge, and, and I'll show you why today. And so by the end of today's uh, seminar, you should really fully understand uh, what clinical trials are, how to access them, and what are the challenges we're facing. So what is a clinical trial? Well, clinical research is really research that involves people. And um, the, the, the really is the question for most people as, why should I consider a clinical trial? And quite frankly, in cancer, and I'll speak largely to cancer because that's my expertise, but it could, this could apply to other diseases as well. But in cancer, few patients are actually cured by current therapies. Unfortunately, you know, most patients undergo chemotherapy and, and are not cured. They just get extended life. The most promising therapies are often available only via clinical trials. And clinical trials really bring the hope of new medicines and medical devices to reality. Clinical trials are free. Uh, most people don't know that. Um, they're completely paid for. All the drugs and devices are paid for. Clinical trials offer the hope and promise of a cure. And finally, clinical trials are a means to give back to others by participation. So advice to patients about clinical trials is really consider them because it's your best option, at least in cancer. Talk to your physician. Realize you may not be eligible for every clinical trial. They're very specific, as you'll see. Um, and continue to consider clinical trials for the future. So 
Unfortunately, there's a sordid history of clinical trials that's led to optimally lots of regulation. And um, we'll go back in time. Um, you know, the, the, the syphilis study of patients in the Tuskegee study um, goes back years ago. Uh, you'll see 1972. There was a memorandum from the Department of Health here um, to uh, close the study. And basically, this was a study, unfortunately, of patients that had syphilis, were diagnosed with syphilis. And whereas there was good treatment available, this study was all about monitoring the natural history of the disease and just seeing what happened to people um, when they developed syphilis without treatment. Um, the uh, experiment was called the Tuskegee study and began in 1932 and went on for a number of years uh, with about 600 black men. Uh, and unfortunately, they suffered all the long-term side effects of bad syphilis. So this timeline, starting in 1932, um, the U.S. Public Health Service engaged in the study in Macon, Alabama. In the mid-40s, penicillin became the treatment of choice, but men in the study were not notified or treated. And of course, this hit the news the first time in 1972, years later. And the study was then ended on the recommendation of an ad hoc advisory panel uh, and ultimately, uh, President Clinton issued a formal presidential apology in 1997. Um, revelations from the study um, led to creation of a national commission. The commission issued the Belmont Report, and this has led to multiple regulations for clinical trial activity. Um, the Belmont Report um, ultimately led to the creation of the uh, Institutional Review Boards, which are called IRBs. So protection of human subjects is, is a concept that we talk about all the time. In any NIH grant that's submitted, you have to have a whole section filled out on protection of human subjects. And it stems from the National Re Research Act of 1974 that um, really was stemming from this syphilis study. Um, and ultimately, the commission was uh, formed and was charged to identify the basic ethical principles that should underlie the conduct of biomedical and behavioral research involving human subjects. So this has led to the Belmont Report that uh, annually physicians have to understand and read and, um, and review and take tests on. Um, but basically this goes over the basic ethical principles for research and it covers respect for persons, beneficence, uh, a concept of beneficence, and uh, justice. And, um, and basically, these are three important concepts that must be understood before any um, person participates in research. You know, we had this protection. Despite that, you know, we had examples like this. Um, this was the Vioxx story. And many of you may not know about it, but Vioxx was a COX-2 inhibitor, one of Merck's largest products in 2001, sales of $2.5 billion. And um, basically there were physicians um, uh, who were involved in the study, started seeing um, evidence of chest pain. And uh, unfortunately Merck didn't engage initially in, um, in uh, you know, these serious adverse events and understanding them and ultimately led to a halt of the research. Um, and of course, a number of patients uh, ended up suffering heart problems um, 
or died as a result of this. So it's an example of how even in modern times, um, things can slip through the cracks. And, you know, it ultimately was a big investigation and lawsuits and everything else. Um, but it, it ultimately was not a good example of what should be done. Another concept in, important in clinical trial research is PHI or personal health information. And there are now a whole slew of laws around uh, HIPAA. Um, the uh, 18 HIPAA identifiers um, include things like your name, your birth date, your social security number, um, and, and, and anything that can identify you as a patient, even your zip code. Um, there are concepts of using fully identified data and, and most clinical trials consent patients to use fully identified data, but in fact only share, um, de-identified data with pharma companies. So it's interesting, um, no pharma company today wants any of your PHI. Um, they will not receive it even if you try to send it to them. Um, so you're in violation if you send them names or social security numbers or telephone numbers or any of those things. Uh, instead, what happens today is all the patients are given a unique identifier um, and that unique identifier uh, is linked back to the patient's identity, identity at the uh, hospital or um, academic center performing the trial. Um, there's an honest broker concept whereby, um, again, uh, uh, you can share tissue and blood samples and, and all the data tied to them without sharing the actual identity of the patient. But then again, there are business associate agreements that allow hospitals to share lots of uh, medical data with vendors. Um, and they could be a vendor for an EMR, could be a vendor for a lab company, et cetera. So don't uh, realize that your PHI is still being shared, but they're under strict uh, guidelines with these vendor agreements and these business associate agreements. So I'm trying to give you a flavor for uh, the restrictions and so forth in clinical trials. Now, the types of clinical trials vary from natural history studies, prevention trials, screening trials, diagnostic trials, treatment trials, observational trials, and, and clinical trials that involve therapies. And those trials come in different phases. Um, there are preclinical tests that start off with laboratory studies um, that provide um, information on dosing and toxicity levels. So that would be the animal studies that are performed or cell line studies that before the drug ever even gets to a, uh, a um, patient. And then we start in with what are called phase one trials. And these are safety uh, trials, primarily safety trials, where um, pharma companies and others try to determine the drug dose, the proper drug dose for a patient. And they raise the drug dose up to the maximum tolerated level. And then that, um, that MTD is often stepped off of. And then they go into a second phase where they evaluate um, the safety and efficacy of, of the dose that's going to be likely used forever. And uh, that dose is then given to many patients in the phase two. The phase one is very small could involve 15 to 25 patients. The phase two may be more like 75 to 100 patients. And there you're trying to evaluate the right dose now, but evaluating the effectiveness of that drug 
uh, in a number of patients. Does that drug cause a shrinkage of the tumor? Is there a response to that drug? And, and then phase three involves um, a comparison of that drug to whatever the standard of care is of the day. And then phase four is really post-marketing the drug after the drug's been FDA approved, um, that drug is still followed for toxicity, i.e. like the Vioxx story where heart attacks occurred afterwards and, and were seen in the phase four studies. So phase one studies are often done only in academic medical centers, phase two studies as well, um, and phase three studies are often done around the country at multiple sites, and phase four studies are done everywhere. So clinical research is complex, and I want to take you through that, and that complexity leads to cost and inefficiencies. But in the end, it has to be done right. So you may not know this, the average time to open a clinical trial is 90 days. It's three months. It takes a long time from conceptualization of the trial to actually first patient on trial. And of course, this is costly because people and institutions are being paid during these periods of time to do lots of things. And I'm going to take you through the things that they have to do. So this should be an eye-opener to everyone. It's not as simple as uh, try drug A, try drug B, and see what happens. So there, there, there's a phase of a design of the trial. And during that design phase, that's where you know, folks have figured out what drug they're going to give, what dose they're going to give, how often they're going to give it, what labs they're going to draw, what other tests they're going to require, like CT, PET, or MRI scans, EKGs, and so forth. And uh, during that time, the electronic case report form is designed, ECRF. And that is a mechanism, it says it's electronic, and it is, but it's still a manual mechanism whereby data people have to enter the data manually into this basically web portal. And um, during that design phase, we'll determine the size of the studies, how many patients are needed to meet the hypothesis and the endpoint of that hypothesis, which is usually survival and progression-free survival. And then finally, the protocol is written and an informed consent is created. So that's the design phase. Then there's a phase called startup that involves IT and database development and programming, database user training, data management plans, central data monitoring plans. You know, we might do these trials at multiple sites. So the data have to be shipped to, from multiple sites to a central site. There may, it may be a randomized trial. So there has to be a randomization procedure and process. Um, and and uh, basically uh, a statistical plan has to be developed with power calculations to show that we have the right numbers of patients. Um, and you have to make some assumptions that a certain number of patients respond, respond to the drug and therefore you need this number of patients to, to show a positive result. Um, you have to select sites. You have to select the investigators based on historical capabilities. Pharma is always looking for good investigators and good sites that deliver on time and can deliver patients when they say they can. Uh, it's funny when pharma goes to almost any site, they'll say, well, how many colon cancer patients do you think, Dr. Yateman, you can put on this trial? And I'll say 30, and they'll say, okay, 15. So they'll cut those in half. Um, 
But uh, the bottom line is very few sites know actually how many patients they have in the queue, and consequently, they guess. Um, so you can see there is some problems here with you know, how trials are designed, and, and, and there's a lot of guesswork um, at this startup phase. Then there's an execution phase that requires you know, post-production changes to the protocol. Of course, every one of these has to go to the IRB and be reapproved. Institutional Review Board, and that often takes a month. Uh, there's data review and cleaning that has to happen, data entry, um, interim analyses. There's something called a data safety monitoring board. So whenever there is a phase three trial, you have to have a data safety monitoring board look at the uh, toxicities um, of the study and relate them back to the control arm and make sure they're not too uh, significant. Um, there's Site subject enrollment, data collection. Uh, sites are paid only after they enroll patients. So uh, pharma is pretty smart about this. They don't pay up front for the most part. Uh, they pay a little bit up front, but most of the money comes to these sites after they've enrolled. So the sites have to do significant work. They have to open the trial. They have to, they have to employ data managers, research nurses. They have to consent patients and, they, and, and collect data. And until they report that data back to pharma, and fill out all the forms and then ECRF I told you about, they actually don't get paid. So clinical trial research is fairly expensive and, and most trial sites run about a million dollars in, in arrears. They're, they're behind always. Um, the, uh, there's statistical analysis at the end, publications, regulatory meetings, audits, et cetera. During this whole process, this one thing says interim monitor visits, so pharma and other groups sponsoring the trial, whoever sponsors the trial is required to monitor it as it goes on. And they monitor monthly, weekly, whatever the monitoring agreement is, but they'll monitor the data and make sure it's good quality, make sure there's not missing data elements in that ECRF, make sure the consents are all done properly and signed and dated and witnessed. All these things are quite frankly stemming from the mistakes of the past. So, if you put it in a, in a sort of a better format here, you can see the multiple steps to open a trial. Start on the left with new study opportunities, um, completing a, um, a CDA. Um, so no pharma company will give you their trial unless the CDA is fully executed. Um, at that time, you start doing feasibility analysis, and that's where pharma comes to you and asks you, what, how many patients do you think you can put on the trial? Um, then you start, um, once they've selected you as a site, you start submitting to the IRB and you start doing uh, compliance reviews. So um, there's another whole phase of this, or two phases of this. There's the IRB phase. There is a um, compliance phase where you have to look at every charge on the trial that's going to be charged to um, insurance companies or Medicare and make sure that's truly standard of care. So on a clinical trial, Medicare and um, insurance companies will cover standard of care things. So if they're normally standard of care, they will cover them. But you can't slip in an EKG or a lab or anything that is part of the research and charge that to Medicare or um, insurance companies. That would be fraud. So there is a whole exercise in compliance, and it's building a massive Excel spreadsheet of every test, every um, charge and, and uh, assigning that charge to the proper payer. And that's all done prior to the study. 
Then, of course, there's a budget that has to be formed. And, and the budget is line by line, element by element. And that has to be then negotiated with pharma or the sponsor. And that takes time. And then finally, once the IRB and the budget and compliance have been done, then you're ready to start the trial. So there's a site initiation visit. There's training, training manuals. Um, everybody needs to be trained from the doctor to the research nurse, to the nurse in the clinic. Um, they all need this training and they'd be on, on board with, you know, who we're trying to recruit and, and what it takes to make this happen. So you can see it's a pretty involved process. And of course, I showed you back here, there's the legal part and the lawyers are always changing um, uh, these to those and things like that. Um, so the devil is in the details, and I'm just showing you this is the full view of all the details that it takes to actually open a clinical trial. And when you actually look at this, it's amazing to understand how it's opened in, could be opened in 90 days. Some sites do this in less than 90 days, and I can tell you lots of ways to cut corners and, and do things uh, faster, and, and we're going to go through some of that. Um, in terms of understanding a clinical trial and its participation, you need to understand what is a serious adverse event, an SAE. And SAEs are any hospitalization uh, whatsoever of a patient is a serious adverse event. It could be due to dehydration. It could be due to vomiting and nausea. It could be due to diarrhea. It could be due to neutropenic fever. All that is a serious adverse event. It must be reported to the IRB within 24 hours. Some must be reported immediately to the FDA. Again, the timing is critical, and that's all arranged ahead of time. So serious adverse events are taken seriously. Um, cancer clinical outcomes and endpoints. So when you talk about a clinical trial, you really want to understand, you know, what you, what's the endpoint of the trial? What makes the trial a success or failure? At the end of the day, for the Food and Drug Administration and cancer, it's survival. So we can talk about all these things, these early endpoints like response, partial response, complete response, progression-free survival, disease-free survival, relapse-free survival. But at the end of the day, the only thing that really counts is overall survival. You got to have a patient living longer for a drug to be approved. Now, why is drug development so inefficient? You hear, you've probably heard this and you know it's very expensive. And you know these drugs cost a fortune. Why is that? Well, if you look at the cone on the left, you see you can start with five to 10,000 compounds in a, in a pre-screening uh, process. And robotics and other things have allowed them, pharma to screen thousands and millions of compounds, quite frankly, and get them down to five compounds or so. And then one of those, and that might take years um, and, and a lot of costs involved in that. Uh, and it's sort of a trial and error thing, quite frankly. Some of these drugs are designer drugs where they're designed to the target, but other times they'll take a random library and just search for uh, natural products and compounds we don't fully understand and see if there is an effect on cell lines in vitro. And then they may go to, um, quite frankly, animal studies is not shown here. And the animal studies are where we treat mice, largely mice, um, and, and put tumors in mice and see whether the the tumors shrink. Um, we also look for toxicity in mice. And then if there's none there and the tumor, the drug looks good, then they'll take it to larger animals and, and look for toxicity in, 
in um, larger animals. And uh, usually um, uh, there's not much toxicity at this point, but some drugs fall out. And uh, then we get to phase one and first in man studies. And that's where we're really looking for toxicity. So if you participate in a phase one study, they'll be drawing blood on you every, uh, you know, uh, maybe 30 minutes to an hour the first day. And those samples will have what are called pharmacokinetics performed on them. They'll measure drug levels in the blood and compare them to your lab values, your creatinine clearance, your liver function, all the important organ functions are studied then. And if the drug then clears that phase one and there's no toxicity, and maybe there's a response or two in a few patients that will go to phase two and we expand to a hundred patients and there we look for efficacy and we look to see responses. We look to see uh, progression-free survival enhanced and responses occur to drugs. And then if that occurs, the drug moves to phase three where it's compared against the standard of care drug, whatever it may be, the existing standard of care. So by definition, in cancer, there are no placebo-controlled trials. You're either going to go on a, on a standard of care plus the new drug uh, or you know, the new drug is compared to the standard of care. You're never going to get um, uh, randomized to uh, placebo only in cancer. In other diseases and vaccine trials, et cetera, that's, that's fine to do. But cancer patients believe they need a therapy. So um, that's one thing of, of interest to know. Uh, at the end of the day, you can get an FDA-approved drug. So if you look at trials by, uh, you know, by the numbers, 11% of trials fail to enroll a single patient. So now we're talking about inefficiencies on the other end. I talked about drug development efficiencies, but this is inefficiencies on the trial side. So you're going to ask yourself, why is that? We're going to get into a little about that in a second. Why does so few patients actually accrue to these trials? And um, 37% of sites did not meet their enrollment goals. Why is that? Uh, and, and why is it that 40% of adults still don't understand what a clinical trial is and are never heard of it? And maybe their doctor didn't talk to them about it. And 32% of surveyed adults say they consider participating in a clinical trial after they actually understood what it is. So there's some silver lining to the cloud. Um, so the problems are, and, and this explains why the, the inefficiency in the previous slide I showed you exists. According to the NCI, 85% of patients are treated in the community, yet less than 3% ever get access to a clinical trial. And there's more than 1,000 drugs needing testing. So why is that? And uh, the answer is that, quite frankly, most of the trials are delivered in academic medical centers, but most of the patients are treated in community health systems. And very few patients can afford to travel to the MD Anderson or Memorial Sloan Kettering, stay in a hotel, and, and stay in the hotel for months at a time. Because if your drug is successful you're, and the trial is successful, you're going to have to go back and forth or stay there for long periods of time. So really not feasible for many patients to do that unless you live in the metropolitan area of these big systems. Um, so for patients, clinical trials are not easy to find. And for clinicians, trial candidates are not easy to find. So finding a clinical trial, matching the right patient with the right trial is a time-consuming and challenging process. Um, 
And uh, like I said, roughly 80% of clinical trials fail to meet enrollment timelines. Um, and many trials are terminated in advance because of enrollment difficulties. It's a sad state of affairs and a lot of money wasted. So why is it so hard to enroll patients? Well, setting aside the geography and, and the, the social inequity of some of these things, uh, there are complex inclusion exclusion criteria. So many of the trials look at you know, patients by age, disease type, histology of that disease. Is it lung cancer? Is it colon cancer? Is it breast cancer? It's got to be metastatic. It has to have measurable metastatic disease. In other words, there have to be a metastasis in the liver or lungs uh, that can be measured on a CT scan with two dimensions. Or, and there can be no CNS disease, so brain mets are often ruled out because if you have brain mets, you're not going to do well. There's laboratories that have to be done. And these patients have to have good labs, and they have to be eating and drinking. If you're not eating and drinking, you're generally not eligible for a trial. Um, and if your laboratories aren't good, your PT, your PTT, your hemoglobin, your platelet count, creatinine, all have to be within the box, or you won't be eligible for the trial. And then there's some biomarkers, and we'll talk a minute about those, but oftentimes there are biomarkers involved. So the question I had uh, a number of years ago, about 10 years ago, can all of this be simplified? Because I was at the Moffitt Cancer Center for 20 years and, and, and trying to do clinical trials and realized how difficult it was, even when I opened a trial up at a, at a major cancer center. Um, the insurmountable hurdles, seemingly insurmountable, um, that... Pharma, hospitals, and especially patients, you know, pay the price of, of high costs and low value. Um, there's a lot of community disincentives with limited infrastructure for trials. Physician time is constrained. You know, the average time a medical oncologist spends with a patient up front is about 30 minutes. So how can you possibly do the history and physical exam, examine the whole, you know, story, and then talk about a clinical trial? So it takes, it takes a lot to do this. It takes a lot of, uh, of, of personnel. Um, big cancer centers are dominant in this um, because they're ready. They have, they have large, they've, they've, they spend a lot on infrastructure to develop this. But um, there's still poor enrollment and, uh, and there's dated business processes. So the community, however, this was my hypothesis, is a huge opportunity because 85% of the patients are treated there. So um, basically it comes down to the fact there are 4,840, I think there's actually 6,000 community hospitals. And there's lots of patients, cancer patients um, per year in that group of community treated patients. So the question was, could we bring trials to the community where most of the patients are? Is that possible? Is that feasible? The national, um, uh, clinical trial system for the 21st century was a project held by the Institute of Medicine. And they um, talked about in this, in this meeting, um, the ability to translate scientific discoveries into clinical advances relies on robust clinical trials infrastructure, which is largely dependent on a critical mass of patients and physicians willing to participate in clinical trials. Less than 1% of adults with cancer participate in cutting edge trials. And, the, and it's, it's worse for minorities and, and rural populations. And the true effectiveness of cancer therapies will not be known unless more people are involved in clinical trials. And only 13% of physicians are clinical investigators. So these were the facts of the Fact-Finding Institute of Medicine Committee.
the IOM recommendations where the committee concluded that a user-friendly electronic tools could lead to increase physician and patient participation in clinical trials. And I emphasize user-friendly. I was just on a Digital Medicine Society uh, seminar today with a whole bunch of people, and we talked about a whole bunch of technologies. But at the end of the day, these tools are still hard to log on to and, and even to set up with your computer and internet. And you know, there's just a lot of steps still. Um, so therefore, the committee recommended the NCI and cooperative groups develop electronic tools that cue physicians practice oncology via an EMR systems. And the committee recommends physicians strive to achieve higher accrual rates of 10% or more. Well, that's, you know, that's a tenfold increase of what it is today. So I read all this and, and uh, um, I, we came up with this concept called the Guardian Research Network. So we built um, a nonprofit 501c3 dedicated to accelerating cures for cancer. And the vision was to build a digital network of patients, clinicians, and hospitals uh, and associ- uh, who, who are associated with EMRs, electronic medical records, to democratize trial access and revolutionize drug development. So our thinking was if we went out to major hospital systems that had an integrated EMR like Epic or Cerner, they would, we could do, we could develop networks of networks effectively. And so this idea would give us unparalleled access to data and unparalleled insight. So the idea was instead of going to hospitals and having nurses comb through charts manually and these EMRs manually. I mean, we call them electronic medical records, but the reality is they're, they're pretty much large trash cans and they house uh, data that's not always organized. So yes, it collects a lot of data, but it, it's very hard to get the data out and, uh, and it has to be pulled out to, to, to be accessible. So the idea was to pull data from all these hospitals and, and get access to millions of tissue blocks and images as well, and then get access to hundreds of thousands of patients for clinical trials. So this was the, the bold idea. And of course, this had to be very secure. So I talked to you about HIPAA before, now you know what that is. So everything had to be HIPAA compliant. All this has to be up in the cloud today and uh, very robustly protected with all sorts of data breach um, processes and procedures to prevent those data breaches. Um, but anyway, if that's all done, the idea is that you could do digital trial matching to save time. So rather than research nurses reading a list of inclusion and exclusion criteria and then reading charts manually, they could do this electronically, searching this large patient population that could go across hundreds of hospitals across the country and, and then start matching treatment A to a population treatment B to another population, treatment C to another population, D to another population. And I called that trial matcher, but the idea was to find the right patients for the right drug at the right time, and we call that precision medicine. Now, EMRs are full of text, um, as well as labs and medications and, and discrete data. So we talk about discrete data like labs, medications, and demographics, but then there's all the doctor's notes. So the doctor's notes are your family practice doctor, your cardiologist, your oncologist, your surgeon, radiotherapist, et cetera. They all write uh, flowery notes, including the pathologist, with lots of words 
And uh, it's like a story. They're telling a story about you as the patient. And previously to us approaching it this way, those notes were, uh, there's a lot of information trapped in those notes, in those words. And so we took on about 10 years ago, natural language processing, which is not new, but it, it was really too new to the use here. And the idea is to, to uh, search for words of interest like metastasis. And you can see here, there are multiple um, entries from different doctors of the word metastasis, but they mean different things in each one of these notes. So if you just search for metastasis like a Google search, you would get the wrong answer half the time because you might find brain mets and we don't want brain mets. I told you we want only liver or lung mets. Or maybe this says no evidence of metastatic disease and you pull up metastasis and you say, aha, I've got 100 patients with metastasis, but half of them actually don't have metastasis because the doctor wrote no evidence metastasis and you're looking for that word. So natural language processing or semantic language analysis tends to look at seven words in front of and seven words behind the keyword, looking for negating words or positive affirmations of, of that word. So that's very valuable. And then you can put that together with, um, with basically searching uh, discrete data like medications and labs and so forth. And so I'll walk you through how this works. This was a real example where we started with 646,000 patients. And we asked, well, how many were still alive? Because you can't do a clinical trial on people that aren't alive. There were 576,000 alive. And how many had lung cancer? Uh, an ICD-10 code consists of lung cancer, 37,000. So you can see we're rapidly looking through this entire database with electronic tools now to find the patients we're interested in. We're looking for a non-small cell lung cancer pathology. Now, a nurse would have to read through hundreds of records, pathology records, the flowery language to find that. With natural language processing, you can find that. The stage of the patient is not listed anywhere in the EMR discreetly. It's in the notes. So you have to read the notes again with NLP. Medications are discrete, so they can be pulled directly from tables. Uh, performance status is not. So whether that patient is eligible for a trial and can actively uh, walk, eat, drink, etc., that's in the notes. Genetics, uh, like genetic testing, sequencing, all that's discrete data now can be searched. And labs are discrete data, like your hemoglobin. I can tell you, so many patients get knocked off the trial after all these steps, and they have a platelet count that's low or a creatinine that's low. So doing this electronically can save a lot of time and much faster. So we felt this GRN concept, the Guardian Research Network, was a game changer. And it, it's, uh, it's basically a community-based network. We're actually starting to bring on some academics, too, because they can benefit from of these some from of these systems. And we can rapidly search this huge database to find uh, patients in, in half the time. And because of that, we can tell pharma companies accurately how many patients there are at site A, B, and C, and D. They don't have to guess and cut it in half, like I told you they do for most sites. So I thought it would be interesting to spend the last um, 10 minutes or so talking about you know, the future and also how can you find a clinical trial? You may want to know how to access a clinical trial. If one of your family members or friends has been diagnosed with uh, stage three or stage four cancer, there are trials for both of those stages. Stage one and two are generally cured surgically. 
and stage three as well, but oftentimes there are stage three trials. Um, and that's when patients, for example, would have lymph node metastases, but not liver or lung or brain. So, okay. So one way to do it is to go to your nearest cancer center. So you can go to MD Anderson's website and I pulled this down and it says, you know, there's a box that says search clinical trials and you can search by cancer treatment, type, treatment or drug uh, or physician. And it tells you what clinical trials are and there's some nice videos. You'll find the same thing at Memorial Sloan Kettering or any cancer center that's an NCI cancer center. Even cancer centers that are community often have this. Um, so it tells you what trials are available, available locally to you. Because again, you don't want to be traveling to New York City uh, and, and, and trying to get in a hotel room and, and do these trials um, unless you have the wherewithal to do that. Um, they often give you quick facts about clinical trials on these sites too. Um, and, and they're very useful education tools, these websites. Um, but then the U.S. government has come up with a, tri a site called clinicaltrials.gov. And it's a very easy to use website. And basically it's got the, the Google search boxes and you can put in here the condition or disease, um, other search terms, and even the country. Um, so I did this um, as an example. I have a trial that I just opened at the University of Utah and Huntsman Cancer Institute and Near Mountain Healthcare. It's a colon cancer trial and it involves a drug called cetuximab. And so I put um, colon cancer and cetuximab in there and I found their trial. So our trial is a cetuximab in the third line, which means patients have failed standard of care and they failed second line therapy. Now they really have nothing else to offer them. So we have uh, an answer to that a drug that's in the third line, but we have certain criteria. They have to have mutant uh, a gene mutant for APC, a gene mutant for TP53, and a mutant for KRAS. So um, you can see that it's only occurring 21 patients. Um, it's a single arm phase two trial, um, and it's it's just started. So if you know any patients that live in, in Salt Lake City and have metastatic colon cancer, there's a trial potentially for them. Um, but here's the eligibility criteria, and this is not uncommon. They have to be over age 18. They either sex is, uh, uh, can apply. Uh, they have to have histologically confirmed metastatic colon cancer. They have to have measurable disease. I told you in the liver or lungs uh, or retroperitoneum. They have to have a good performance status, which means that they, they're eating and drinking and, 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 uh, and taking care of themselves. Um, they have to have a life expectancy greater than three months. They have to have labs that are in the box that are certain labs. You can't have a high bilirubin high creatinine, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see all these uh, criteria. So it's important to understand that uh, with the GRN, we can do this electronically. Um, the way it's actually been done at the University of Utah and Intermountain Healthcare now is, is still manually. So a nurse will have to pull the chart and review all the latest labs and make sure those are all in the box before they can even accept them for the trial. So I give an example of some of the problems that I've seen over years with trials and one approach that I personally took to try to solve that. Um, but I'm also going to give you some future applications of new trials and technology in the last five minutes. And then we'll have 10 minutes available for questions. So um, for this, I really wanted you to understand what a biomarker is. 
A biomarker is a blood test or a tissue test that um, predicts disease response or effectiveness of a drug. It can also predict prognosis, but the predictive biomarkers are more valuable than the prognostic ones. You may be familiar with the, the Onco, it's a test called OncoDX. Every uh, female with breast cancer um, that's node negative will get that test today pretty much. Um, and that test helps you determine what the chance of, of metastasis is, but it's also predictive of who's gonna respond to chemotherapy. So it helps women today make that tough decision on should I get chemotherapy or not if I'm on the fence and in this gray zone? Um, so the biomarkers help select subpopulations of patients responsive to drugs, and they promise to reduce, reduce drug costs because um, pharma companies would love the situation where one drug fits everybody, but we know that's not true. For the most part, many of these drugs, there's only a 50% response rate. A great story is a drug called trastuzumab, Perceptin for breast cancer, and it, it went through the process of trials and FDA approval, and it failed the first time around because it didn't show a survival advantage big enough for the FDA. So they went back and said, well, I wonder if, if the receptor to which this drug binds, um, uh, called HER2, if we looked at HER2-positive patients, would they fare better with the drug? And sure enough, they did, and that led to FDA approval and a billion-dollar drug, and many patients have benefited from that. So other biomarkers you might be aware of are PSA, men with prostate cancer, CEA, colon cancer. Hemoglobin A1C for diabetes is a biomarker, predicting you know, risk of diabetes. And LDL, your lipo, the low-density lipoprotein for heart disease. Um, I think the more data that you can put together, the more valuable it is. So um, Verizon had a formula that says the value of the network, it's called Metcalfe's law. The value of the network is proportional to the number of samples or patients in the network um, squared. So Verizon uses that to value its network. The more people in the network, the more value Verizon's network is. That's why they want to have the biggest network in the world. Um, but I say for uh, health and disease, the value is related to the sample size, the number of patients raised to the power of the dimensionality of, of, the, uh, of what you're measuring. And what I mean by dimensionality is labs, medications, images, sequencing. And what I'm gonna tell you about quickly is proteomics and metabolomics and stool microbiome. So all those things increase the value of the data uh, exponentially, I believe. And then if you add the factor of time, it even is more valuable. So the Framingham study is a great example of one of these long-term studies we've done over this country, in this country, and developed a whole bunch of information from patients followed over time. Very valuable to follow people over time. So the, the time value of data is like the time value of money. It's very valuable. Uh, lots of insights gained. And uh, by the numbers, you can see the Framingham study has been going on for 70 years, 15,000 participants. Um, uh, they, they, they really um, determined a lot of things about cardiac risk and identified that blood pressure uh, rate should be between 120 over 80 and, 
and smoking is the bad thing to do and cardiac uh, events are related to your LDL level. And that's why statins work. So they, they covered a ton of things. And so very important to do these studies. Now you're all familiar with the, the first human genome project, which um, was a study of one person. And they did the whole genome analysis on one person. And it cost, uh, I think, $3 billion to do that. But it's, it's deemed to be worth $800 billion now in value. So we thought, um, well, Dr. Hood, I should say, is a visionary. And I, I think he's really, I would call him the um, uh, father of precision medicine. He invented P4 medicine. And of course, many other things he's envisioned and invented. He invented the first uh, automated DNA sequencer, for example. He may have spoken to you in the past, but uh, his idea was to go way beyond the first human genome project, which was a sample size of one, and, and to go to a million people and not just look at the genome, which is 3 billion base pairs, but look at the whole genome on each one of a million people, but add to that the proteome, uh, which is all the proteins, then the metabolome, the metabolites, of, of different drugs and the microbiome in the stool and digital measures and pair that with the data, the vast data from electronic medical records. Um, so this will require consent, a blood draw twice a year, digital measurements, and, and then following patients through their medical records. So we call this the phenome. So everything beyond the genome is the phenome. It's everything I talk to you, uh, proteomics, um, genomics, uh, epigenetics, microbiome, et cetera, et cetera. That's the phenome, along with all of the, the traits that come through the electronic medical record. So we have collectively developed uh, a new nonprofit called Phenom Health, of which I'm uh, the chief clinical officer. And that, uh, that uh, new company has agreed to join forces with the Guardian Research Network to provide the universe of molecular data through Phenom Health with the universe of clinical data from these EMRs and the patients in the GRN. So the GRN will find a million people, consent them, draw their blood, send their blood uh, out to various vendors to get the genome done, the proteome done, and all these other things, and then move that data back to Phenom Health for analysis. And then we produce the world's most comprehensive public database of human uh, molecular anatomy, I call it, and this leads to innovation, tremendous innovation, what we call scientific wellness, the ability in 21st century medicine, where we actually focus on keeping people well and preventing disease rather than doing what most doctors do today, which they treat disease in a fee-for-service environment. Um, and I'll tell you the complexity is amazing. This is the fruit fly, which is one of the simplest organisms out there. And it's showing you all these complex proteins and protein complexes. Remember genes, DNA codes for RNA, which codes for protein. You're looking at the proteins in this fruit fly and, uh, and how they're all interacting. All those little lines connected means they're interacting in complex networks that we even don't fully understand yet. If that's the fruit fly, what do we look like? So the idea is to create one of these maps for the human and, uh, and we're going to use uh, artificial intelligence and, and the greatest computing power possible to get there. But we think this is 21st century medicine and where it's headed. Uh, and we call this inventing the science of wellness and prevention. 
uh, and you can learn more about it at phenomehealth.org. So I'd like to thank you for your attention and thank you for the privilege of presenting to this uh, Gus group. Um, I know the history of this um, Commonwealth Club and I'm, I'm thrilled to present here today and now ready to answer your questions. And I will um, stop sharing my screen and give it back to Robbie to, uh, to uh, lead off. Thank you, Tim. Man, I learned an awful lot in that program today. And we have a, a slew of questions. So here's the first one. I don't think you mentioned this. What is the normal lifespan of a clinical trial from start to finish? Good question. And it depends um, on the trial. So it depends on the phase. So phase one trials often take uh, a year to two to complete. Phase two trials can be actually quicker depending upon the size. Phase three trials can take years to complete, five years. And then these trials can go on afterwards with long-term follow-up for serious adverse events and other things uh, down the road like phase four studies. So the whole process of drug development be, can be 10 years for a drug, but I just gave you the different phases and how, how long each takes. Sure. So, so that segues into the next question, which is that um, <clears throat> the COVID vaccines in the United States were not subjected to regular clinical trials. I think the FDA issued an emergency allowance of some kind. Is, is this because clinical trials would take too long? Um, well, that's, that's a complex question, and I'll give you a complex answer. There was an emergency use authorization for these because people were dying. And uh, I think the FDA thought um, that it was important to get something out there that appeared to be safe with 40,000 patients worth of data from Pfizer and probably the same from Moderna. So they didn't have the long-term effects on pregnancy, um, on, um, you know, who knows what down the road, clotting and other things that we've seemed to uncovered from some of these things. Um, and, and those things will come over time. And, and, of course, people are being followed for those things. So those original trial participants are still being followed. Um, there is also – and the FDA normally doesn't um, hold court over vaccines. You know, mostly these were all done by the CDC, but the FDA took this one over, which I was happy to see, by the way. I used to work for the FDA when I was about um, 20 years old, and they gave the example of never letting a serious drug – uh, effect go through. Now, I'll, I gave you the virus example that happened, but thalidomide was their example where they blocked thalidomide and no one was born in this country with birth defects due to the FDA blocking that drug. So, so I mean, given, given everything you've said about clinical trials and the comment you just made about the 40,000, how could the FDA have decided that COVID vaccines are safe to administer when they, when they really were not subjected to the usual protocols of other drugs? Is it, is it you well, said, is it, was it a bet or, or uh, do they have sufficient evidence? I think they had sufficient evidence to do the EUA and then it took them more time to get, now you know they're fully approved. So they had to get all that data in from these pharma companies um, and, and follow up and so forth. And they had to probably track down any deaths or any side effects that were reported. Now, as you know, um, 
Since then, there's also this uh, Vera system that reports all sorts of things that anybody can report, although it's difficult to do. Um, they report deaths. Um, you can have deaths related to these vaccines, and they're reported, but it's not cause and effect kind of stuff. And so, like the, uh, a woman who's 85 years old in a nursing home and gets it today, but has a stroke three days from now, was that related to the vaccine, or was would she normally going to have that? Um, and and so there's that sort of thing. Uh, personally, I think um, you know they're they're fairly safe. Uh, it's not perfectly safe because we don't have that long-term follow-up. I, I, I can't tell you the effect on, you know, first, second trimester pregnancies um, and, you know, things like that. And, and are there going to be long-term vascular or neuropathy effects and things like that that can happen down the road? Don't know yet. Okay. Um, another question. Um, are clinical trials mainly focused on drugs and devices? One of the greatest criticisms of quote-unquote alternative treatments and modalities are that they are not subjected to clinical trials. So often, you know, a lot of people spend, people spend billions of dollars on supplements, right? There's, yeah. and, then, and then doctors will say, well, of course, these have not been subject to clinical trials, but, but they're also not subjected to clinical trials by people who do clinical trials, if you can see. So it's kind of a betwixt and between situation. It, it's a little ir- irony. And I can tell you that um, if it's if it's there for humans, it's also there for dogs and horses. We have a couple of horses and there's su- supplements abound for your horses. And of course, they're much more expensive because there's more of them required. Um, I think the irony is that, um, yeah, most of the nutraceuticals don't fall under this. And I don't think they want to fall under the FDA scrutiny they don't want to be considered a therapeutic because it would, it would take them a drug development cost and process to get there. The problem is then we don't know whether many of these things work. Um, and I, for instance, I couldn't tell you whether taking, and this is my honest opinion, whether taking any probiotic works. Now, some people swear by them. I've taken them before. I don't notice a difference. I would like to see evidence that they change the stool microbiome permanently, good, I don't know whether a bowel prep changes your stool microbiome. I don't know whether antibiotics change it permanently or temporarily. So there's a lot we don't know, and I think we have to admit that. There's a, just like I think that was one of the problems with the vaccines. Nobody was, everybody's afraid to admit, hey, we just don't know. There's some things we don't know. So previously, uh, changing the topic now, you, did you say, did I hear you say in the context of phenome health that the plan is to build, did you say the world's largest database? Of, of health data, or, or am I wrong? Did I misunderstand? Well, I think in the end, it will be the lar- world's largest database of molecular and clinical data. Certainly, there's large um, molecular databases in the UK. They've got UK Biobank and things like that. But they've limited to the things that they're going to do. And this phenome study, looking at microbiome in the stool, which I think is is probably connected to heart disease and diabetes and everything else, but we just don't know yet and don't understand it. Um, there's the metabolome, there's the genome, and there's the proteome. All of these things have vast untapped information. So I think if you put all that together on a million people, yes, uh, that will be the, the largest um, database of its kind. So one of the, the comments uh, slash questions from the audience is, um, can you talk about Iceland's genomic library? Hasn't the country of Iceland provided their entire population's genome 
to researchers. Do you know much about that? Yeah, they did. Um, so I do. Um, and uh, Decode was the company that um, did that work. And uh, they've found a lot of interesting things. Uh, as you know, when you have people living on an island, um, uh, basically the genetic diversity is not as great as it is uh, in, in a large country. Similarly, um, if you go to Utah, there's a, a parallel project being going on there um, uh, with, with Amgen and Decode. Um, and you know, Utah is a state where there was a large Mormon population that ha was founded from about 150 people. So you think about mutations and now they can get into populations, whether it's the Ashkenazi Jewish population, um, be, because pop, I mean, when populations stay within their religion or, uh, or, or a geographic boundary, any mutations that n occur naturally, and they do all the time, could be amplified and could become found in mutations and eventually cause disease. So looking at um, the, like a decode is very interesting because you'll see a lot of mutations that probably uh, lead to disease. And then you can look and see if they sporadically occur in the normal populations uh, and to a lesser degree, but you can start to understand disease relationships. So it's an important database. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Amgen or Decode are trying to build on that right now. Well, uh, this has been a fabulous program. We're, we're very near to the end. So what I'd like you to do is, is, is make, you know, a few closing remarks. What do you think that our audience who's viewing this live, but who also will view this program uh, once it's digitally archived, what should they walk away with? What's your key message? I think, um, I think anytime you have the opportunity to participate in a, a clinical trial, you should consider it for yourself, your family, and for others. And uh, I'll give you a couple examples. In cancer, I told you, it's been said by ASCO, the, the biggest organization for cancer, that the best chance for cure is a clinical trial. And they, all, they watch you very carefully, very meticulously, every lab checked, every, every T crossed, every I dotted. That's important. Um, and then there's new drugs for heart disease and diabetes that you wouldn't have access to otherwise. If you carry a, a gene called lipoprotein little a in, 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 in your doctor checked for it, it carries, we think, a great risk for heart disease. Guess what? There's a new drug available for that, but only on a clinical trial. Could be life-saving. So I would urge people to consider participating in trials, realize that we are, we are past Tuskegee. We are no longer treating prisoners and, and black populations exclusively uh, in inappropriate ways. Lots of regulations, and they're free. Well, Dr. Timothy Yateman, thank you so much for this eye-opening program today. I certainly have learned a lot. Uh, I hope you'll uh, come back and visit us sometime. I want to thank all of you, our audience who are watching, and also uh, to those of you who will watch this program archived. If you're not yet a member, please consider joining. Nominal fee, $10 a month, www.commonwealthclub.org. We have programming across the spectrum of society. If you can think about it, we're probably planning to talk about it. So thank you very much for joining us. I hope you have a lovely day, lovely evening here on the West Coast, evening in Florida, wherever you are, Tim. Take care. See you soon. Bye for now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.